0: At the end of my suffering there was a whore It was Franny Choi
1: Shall I compare them to a summer's day? Nah, they're just a dismiss.
0: <laughs> You're listening to Verses The podcast where poets confront the ideas that move them That was good That was good yeah, That was our most that. poetry appropriate <laughs> intro ever
1: Well done us Finally we're poets <laughs>
0: Finally, we're a poetry podcast. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> One sweet day, we got it right. Five <laughs> seasons in, <laughs> and yet
1: you still managed to call me a whore, which is, I think, a very an accomplishment. So
0: it means that we were still us. We're you still know, us, we did right? not we, we, we did not lose ourselves within our assimilation into the poetry podcast yeah. industrial complex. <laughs>
1: exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of being ourselves, being oneself, Nessie, when is the last time you've gone back to read Insert Boy? Oh wow! The first book, number one.
0: I don't know if I've sat down and read the whole thing, but I did peruse. I feel like every time, like I'm cleaning my house, I kind of like maybe sometimes, like I say, every couple of months, I like start like reading my books because I always have like a copy of a book, like kind of hanging out somewhere. Especially throughout these months of like Zoom readings and stuff like that, it's just like there's my old tattered copy of "Don't Call Us Dead" or uh, "Homie" that I forgot to put back the last time I did a reading. You know, I read my old. Uh, college like undergrad manuscript like once a year I clean out my grandma's garage like once a summer which means that I just like shift around all the shit that we all have in there mm-hmm. and so at some point I have to like move my little stack of books that I'm like don't throw these away mm-hmm. uh, but I don't want them in my house and <laughs> that includes <laughs> and so I read what was called like Swallow and berry, which was like my little undergrad manuscript oh um but I love those because I can also like really feel the presence of like a community voice in there right mm. of being like this is like a time when i was like very much like coming up in slam and like i think there were ways in which like we were kind of echoing off of each other as well too and i can kind of read like oh i think this is when i started hanging out with sam you know oh. uh <laughs> I love that. and so yeah that always like sort of pleases me and also lets me know that like oh yeah and I, now I feel like I, I know what I'm doing too and not to say that you know niggas ain't still reverberating you know or a community but you know it's just like oh look at young Nez trying on the styles you know
1: <laughs> yeah totally I mean I love going back and thinking about what I was thinking at the time or what I was excited by or confused by or like you know disgusted or or like ignited by I think that it's like every few years that I go back and read Floating Brilliant Gone book number 1. Read it like I'm reading it as a reader, you know, like starting at Oh wow, you one. like covered cover to yeah. cover. Yeah. And I try to actually read every poem. Usually what happens is I've felt distant from that person that I was or just from from that writer that I was, and then when I go back, it's just like re-meeting myself a little bit, you hmm. know? And also kind of remembering that like Even though I didn't exactly articulate what I was trying to do in the poems, like I was trying to do certain things, and I was doing a good job (laughs) at certain things, even if I didn't (laughs) always know what they were, you know, or know what they were in in conversation with, or what the context was, Um, I like that feeling of going back and being like, okay, it wasn't as embarrassing as I thought it was, or like, you know, like if people meet this version of me, you know, that's okay what do you think you walk away from like those moments when you return to that old poem? Like, what do you walk away from it with?
0: You know, I think it's sort of, it's like returning to any place, right? Sometimes it can find nothing, right? You know, mm-hmm. you sort of like go, um, or not nothing, but like, you know, it's not what you expect. I think we talked about this a little bit in the episode with Arya. You return to something, a place, um, a thing, um, whatever it is, um, and it's not what you thought, expected it to be. But sometimes, you know, those things that we're constantly returning to, like the work we're talking about, hopefully with distance comes a different type of acknowledgement with what was a seed there. That's what I hear you saying, Franny. You know, it's like, I look back at those early poems, and maybe there's a poem in those early collections that I didn't quite recognize at the time that I was learning so much from. Part of returning is like sort of returning to the places that still hold the possibility of mystery um, for you, right?
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I love that we're talking about this, you know, both on the level of our work as, as poets and as artists, but also the idea of returning to an origin point or an ancestral space or, um, you know, an earlier version of oneself, whether that's like literal or figurative like this can be like really profound and meaningful even more so when um, exile is in the mix when diaspora is in the mix um, when colonialism is in the mix Um, and so it is for all of these reasons that we are really excited to bring to you all this interview with none other than the George Abraham whose book Birthright which came out in 2020 like cracked open this really beautiful space, both in craft and in political thought, I think, about um, all of these themes that we're talking about. So we're really excited to share this conversation uh, where we talk to George about the idea of distance and exile and what it means as an artist to create a sort of poetics of returning in the craft itself.
0: George Abraham is a Palestinian-American poet from Jacksonville, Florida. Their debut birthright from Button Poetry in 2020 won the Big Other Book Award and was a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award in Bisexual Poetry. He is a board member for the Radius of Arab-American Writers Rawi, a recipient of fellowships from Kundiman and the Boston Foundation, and winner of the 2017 College Union Poetry Slam Invitational's Best Poet title. The work has appeared in the Nation American Poetry Review, The Baffler, the Paris Review, Mesna, and elsewhere. A graduate of Swarthmore College and Harvard University, George currently teaches at Emerson College and will be a Lithowitz MFA and MA candidate at Northwestern University in the fall. We are so excited to bring y'all this interview um, with George, who is just one of our leading formalists in poetry. Such an exciting um young voice. If you are not familiar with George's work, consider yourself put on. If you know about George's work, then consider yourself about to be floored once again. Um and so let's get into this thing with George Abraham who is going to start us off with a poem.
2: Heritage come morning he won't even remember my name. Come midnight will be washed of his every trace, the blood pooling in moonlight, staining oceans empty of biology's brief mimicry. I said I love him because he too was born on the wrong side of a wall, perhaps in funeral quiet. This is the whitest he'll ever be. We thank him for his service behind a makeshift altar. And what if gratitude isn't a thinning bloodline? His head, pillowed by flag of blood and star. In life, he'd want to cook for us. He never let us leave empty stomachs. His brother grips my hand, asks, what are you? Transfixes his eyes on the wounds I bulleted into my own face. All he knows of divinity was once heresy and clipped wing. In truth. Had they known of the mouths I spoke a swollen history into, most men in my family would have wanted me dead. And I'd like to think this its own forgiveness into the gardener's hands, both seed and flood water, the expense of every bloom, a season of winded upheaval because who else could know better this swallow and fang sunk tongue because they've tasted their own pooling blood. I'd like to think my ancestors couldn't imagine me on. Under- written from their gospel. The ghosts that were my name, not the exiles of another heaven, inherited because we too lost our countries before we lost our bodies. Every man I've held with pen was once capable of breaking me. We were never meant to survive this mythos. Forgive me, I'm running from this poem into another boy's arms like we were never meant to survive this mythos. Every man I've held with palm was once capable of breaking me because we lost our countries before we lost our bodies, not the exiles of. Another heaven inherited me from unwritten gospel. The ghosts that wear my name pooling blood, I'd like to think my ancestors couldn't imagine this feng sang tongue because they've tasted their own. Because who else could know better this swallow, the expense of every bloom, a season of winded upheaval. Into the gardener's hands, both seed and floodwater and death, I'd like to think, is its own forgiveness, its own history. Most men like him would have wanted a family in me, in truth, had they not known of the mouths I swelled into. All we know of heresy was once divinity's unclipped wing. He transfixes his eyes on the wounds I bulleted into my own face. He grips my hand, asks, what are you wanting? He cooked for me after, didn't let me leave empty stomached, my head pillowed by stars of no flag in life. What if gratitude isn't a thinning bloodline? Isn't an unthinning bloodline? I thanked and serviced him behind our makeshift altar in funeral quiet. Perhaps this is the widest I'll ever be, although he too was born on the wrong side of a wall. Empty of biology's brief mimicry, I couldn't have said I love you. Our blood pooling in moonlight, staining oceans. Come midnight, I'll wash myself. Of his every trace. Come morning, I won't even remember his name.
1: George, God. I love this poem. Thank you so much.
0: Coming through with the ill palindrome. Yeah,
1: oh, yeah right. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you to talk a little bit about this palindrome form? Like what led you to it? Was there a point at which it became clear that that was how this poem was going to happen?
2: Yeah, this is a poem that I think has an interesting backstory, actually. I was experiencing weird, like, I'm not out to my family, and so calling it homophobia or queerphobia is kind of an odd thing. It's like a, we're suspicious of you, and we're letting you know that we're suspicious of you kind of thing at a a funeral of all places. (sighs) And I wrote a version of what became this poem that night, thinking it was actually quite a a little bit after Dinez when you were reading that poem at AWP waiting for some people to die until I could be myself Mm -hmm. um and so I was thinking a lot about about that poem and I was thinking a lot about like just my experience of wow I'm like around the death of my family and these are like old weird conservative people that I I'm just kind of feeling all these conflicted ranges of emotions of like Palestinian queer phobia as like an inheritance of colonial violence. Um, Palestinian homophobia is something that America very much exacerbated and induced in a lot of these folks, I think. And the American South too. Uh, This poem takes place in the American South, which is where I grew up, Jacksonville, Florida. Right after the funeral, I went and I hooked up with someone on Grindr. And so I was like, this is such an interesting parallel and also a way of question mark processing um that, like, <laughs> yeah it was weird it was like an oddly tender grinder meetup that was like he was like I want to cook for you I want to like he didn't know what was going on but could see something was going on and he was very sweet human who I like never met again <laughs> um so yeah it was just like an interesting parallel series of moments there going from the funeral and the funeral talked and a lot about food and then we had food and like, I don't know. There's So there's a lot of things going on image-wise I was like just thinking of and consumption. And uh, so I write the poem and feel really relieved and I send it to like a few of my friends and my friend Bradley just kind of highlighted the entire final stanza of the poem draft. Uh, And mind you, it wasn't in a palindrome form. It was just kind of a lyric poem. Bradley highlighted the entire last stanza and is like, where is the blood? I spent an entire year and a half
1: thinking about that question, actually. Um,
0: <laughs> Where's the blood? Mm.
1: A year and a half thinking about that question for this poem specifically. For this
2: poem. Wow. And I have a weird relationship to this poem because I feel like this is a truth that I've been wanting to say for a while. And I'm also feeling like it's not quite done. And there was just this gut feeling in my that I had that was just telling me, oh, no, this poem's not done. And I couldn't figure out why. And then I kept on thinking about the question of where is the blood? And then I was like walking one day, again, a year and a half later, having just put the poem aside for a bit and not you know, actively thought about it as much. And then I was like, wait, maybe the blood isn't returning maybe the blood is in the language itself and I need to mimic and embody a returning in language and this uncomfortable scene of like the funeral scene's exact language becomes like a grinder hookup scene's exact language. I needed form to embody that. Like The turn of the poem was there but it wasn't quite working on a level of embodiment and so mm. I was like what is a form that is predicated on returning, and that is the palindrome. I started with the image of blood, and then I'm like, I need to come back to it at some point, and not in some like cheesy, the last line is the first line of the poem, TM way, but just in in a more embodied way, in a a way that's more accurate to the memory I was trying to get at in this poem.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Well, it also seems like fully committing to this palindrome in the way that you do it's just like a fuller commitment to returning than just having the last line be the first line you know every step away I have to take like each and every step back yeah I love that idea of it being more embodied
0: Thank you for saying that the way you did, Franny, because it makes me want to ask George, um, sort of, you are such a staunch and like deep formalist, right? Um, and you're doing forms within forms, right? There's like triptych sestinas, you know, there's like collapsing things, right? You're like, you're so inventive. And I th- I wonder for you, between like form and content, or let's say form and the memories and the stories that they hold, how precious is the form to the formalist, right? Um, do you feel like form is really showing up oftentimes in like, guiding you towards what you're trying to do or are you just trying shit you know it might be different answers for every work but yeah mm
2: -hmm. i kind of think of it almost bi-directionally that like when i think of form it's not about content leading form or form leading content but like a bi-directional kind of hug between the two of them or entangling form and memory entangling form and content um and i think i have about equal amount of stories of I have some form idea that I just want to try And let me find the correct poem for the form. I have a lot of stories that are like that or vice versa. I'm trying to write into a poem content or memory or story, et cetera, wise. And I am going to let the content naturally lead me to a form. And if a form doesn't exist, invent a form or break a form. Um, To be devoted to form is to be devoted to form's breakage, I think, as well. Mm. Um, There isn't really any way for me to continue uh, the work I'm doing without breaking open. And like I think the Markov sonnet is a kind of nice example of a bit of both modes. In an explicit sense, there was a story about Palestinian near Hebron in the West Bank, or uh, as Palestinians call it, Al Khalil, there was a vineyard uh, in a West Bank city of Halhul. And on my way to Kundiman, actually, my first year of Kundiman, I... Read a news article about how settlers in the West Bank took a chainsaw and just kind of like went to town with the grapes and the the grape leaves, uh, and then spray painted "We will reach everywhere" on the building. And thinking about like violence against Palestinians as something both ecological and violence to our bodies it's a relationship they're in but it's a relationship i don't quite have access to it's a relationship i view through a distance of diaspora imposed by exile but still a proximity to empire nonetheless and i was reckoning with i need to tell this story in a poem and i just don't know how to do it i don't know how to access a memory that is inaccessible to me um, how do I access a land that is inaccessible to me? How do I access a history of trauma that is inaccessible to me? Is kind of the meta questions. And so the form kind of was that level of disembodiment, kind of as Dinez was saying, it is kind of an iterative poem. It's a, it's a sonnet that's kind of disembodied and memoryless. Um, every sequence of three lines reads as a cause, action, effect, triplet, where the sonnet erases itself after every three lines. And so I was like, how can I embody memoryless, but also a kind of stepping through memory uh, in a way that mimics how I experience history or how I experience like uh, trying to understand trauma against Palestinian land? And a lot of that was inspired by my science background. The Markov chain is a memoryless probability system where you're trying to model a sequence of actions and It's an assumption that any action you're trying to model only depends on the previous action. So one action causes the next, which causes the next, which causes the next. That's why it's called a chain, and it's a mathematical simplification for modeling a lot of systems from communication networks to biological systems. Uh, has a lot of like applications in so many domains. And but I'm really interested in the idea of like a memoryless model for systems. And so I'm like, what if I tried to make the sonnet a memoryless thing. And you have to read every line as an isolated, you can only know what happens before and what happens after. Nothing else causally matters. And so I think that the explicit consequences are, yeah, memorylessness. But the implicit consequences, like the known, the embodied consequences of this form is kind of like what Dines said earlier as like, it's like an iteration process it's a you're slowly working your way through the poem and that's something that was a little bit unintentional with the form that I was like oh wow I didn't realize until about halfway into the poem that I'm like this is a kind of interesting syntactical stagnation that comes with the form and this is kind of what Leads me to like uh, thinking about the relationship between form and memory. Memory is something that's both known and declarative versus something internal to our bodies. I I think form has implicit and explicit consequences and embodiments in a poem. You can say, cool, I'm going to write a sestina, which means on an explicit level, I know that I have to return to these six words shuffled in different increments. But what are the implicit consequences of that? How does it frame how you're trying to tell a story through a sestina? If if you're Mm -hmm. trying to tell a story, Um, how does it frame how you're trying to access a memory through a sestina? What if you say, let's, throw some of the words out along the way and put a barrier up in memory. How can a Cicino reckon with that kind of a breakage in form? Um, Every decision in form and every breakage of form has consequences that I think are both explicit and implicit. And it's something that I've like come to find joy in in form, the surprises, the macro idea influencing the implicit Afterwards of of writing the poem and saying, oh, wow, that was a consequence of language that I didn't quite go into searching for, but it happened. And now now I'm left with something like really interesting. Um, And so in a way, form is a neural system of memory almost for a poem is how I've always sort of thought about it.
1: Wow! Yeah, there were so many things that you just said, George, that I want to go into, but I want to like put a pin in form as neural, like the sort of like form as neural network. But um, could we go back to some like some earlier things that we said so that we can kind of like pick apart some of that this like chain of like wisdom bomb that you just dropped? So it was just like a stream of them. So um, like first of all, I just want to kind of go back to this Markov sonnet, the idea of form being a thing that allows you to create the sense of forgetting is so fascinating in some ways it makes total sense that like a diasporic poetics would lead a poet to like inventing forms to have like half a grasp on a tradition and then be like well I have to also kind of define what this is for myself or or, you know because I can't just do this and so um, I also kind of want to ask about like the sonnet part of that, Markov sonnet? Like what does it mean to bring in forms that are also like of like a Western literary canon? Um, and yeah, how do you how do you relate to that as as a poet?
2: There's the kind of two answers. There's the kind of like answer of how I as a Palestinian, kind of like you're saying, are trying to make my own way through a sonnet and through Western forms in general. But like, there's another way that I've been thinking about the sonnet as a bit of a rhetorical box, almost like when we think about the history of the sonnet and like almost every single element of the sonnet nowadays is fluid meter i mean (laughs) i don't want to turn this into a prosody as colonialism podcast but um, (laughs) (laughs) meter is kind of out of the you know window a little bit and rhyme again is like great there are some italian sonnets in john mario's contemporary american poetry collection that i'm like i'm gonna use that to teach italian sonnets instead of i don't know insert random poet from 1500s. People can and have done really great things taking Western prosody aspects of the sonnet form, but it's a bit fluid now. And the 14 lines even, a bit fluid. Sam Sax's 13 word sonnet in Kaddish. And so what is not fluid and not negotiable is the volta. (laughs) It's not a sonnet if it doesn't have a volta. In my head, it's a little bit of a rhetorical game. You're trying to set up for some big turn. That's a rhetorical structure as much as it is a formal structure. What kind of a poem would demand that kind of rhetorical structure? What kind of a memory, if you want to try to use a sonnet to unlock a memory, what kind of a memory would demand that kind of a rhetorical structure? Or an Italian sonnet, which is a more even approach. Like
0: Question for you, George, though, about this form, right? Because I'm thinking, right, like you're talking about the Volta's Unavoidable and we have this sonnet that we're getting three lines at a time. And even the Markov part of the sonnet, right, is directing us towards a cause and effect. Did you make a son- Sonnet that only voltas are possible.
2: <laughs> I think that's kind of where I was going with it. Again, this, <laughs> this was maybe not the the quite a quote unquote intended direction of where I went with it, but like in a way, what if we isolate every triplet and every triplet is a volta of sorts? And what I was kind of also trying to think about with the volta and the, why the sonnet for the Markov sonnet is like in a meta sense. The poem's meta volta, if you were to strip the poem of its form and view it as just a 14 line sonnet, that volta is obscured to an extent Mm. through the three line stepping in a micro sense. Every line has a volta kind of thing, but in a macro sense, obscuring the larger traditional thinking of a volta of you're going into a sonnet expecting there to be a turn
1: somewhere. But there's too many turns. There's like lots. There's lots of turns. Yeah. Yeah. You can't
2: know it. And and that is kind of reading history in diaspora is a little bit like that. It's a little bit like trying to get a slice of history that we have or historical memory that we have access to. Uh, And colonialism is the process that obscures that larger Volta reckoning, that larger trajectory. And it takes like work, capital W, to assemble a causal chain of events uh, that is not memoryless, a causal chain of events where you can see the Volta is colonialism. The Volta is here is how Western forces have systematically fucked over insert population or insert geographic location, et cetera, et cetera. That kind of process is something I wanted to imbue into the sonnet a little bit.
0: Because Western civilization, Mm -hmm. right, the colonial project has also bombarded the people with voltas, right? Like that is what colonialism is, right? Turn after turn after turn. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. So really Mm -hmm. to turn the tools. I think you are a, a formalist who's interested in turning... Let's say the tools of your oppression into the tools of your craft, I think, because you're also playing around with like erasure, right? And trying to like fight against Palestinian erasure while using erasure as a tool for you. How did that manifest in your work, right? How did you start looking at the possible tools of the oppressors, right? And like sort of turning them on their head, right? Is that an intentional movement? Is that something you sort of found yourself sort of accidentally doing after a while? Or does that feel like a political act within the craft of your work
2: itself? A little bit of both, but more the former. Um, so I will say Solmaj Sharif has, not even just with me, with almost everyone I know, I think, <laughs> changed the landscape of Southwest Asian, North African poetry. Reading Look was a kind of defining moment for me of, in my own thinking about formal disembodiment and thinking about erasure as a process that I not have only lived, but I can use within my poetry. I didn't really have an even remote interest in that until I read Look by Solma Sharif or Phil Metris's Sand Opera. Those are kind of both kind of canonical examples of like erasure poetics. And I think that both of those, so my interest in erasure kind of maybe evolved from sitting with those works for a while. But also the more I've actually grown through form and through just grow- like just the more I've written poetry the more I've actually come to really dislike erasure in a lot of ways I've kind of shied away from it I guess like the kind of poetics I'm writing towards I don't know if like explicit forms of erasure are as useful to what I'm trying to do right now
1: can you say why yeah what is it about erasure that you're feeling suspicious of
2: And this is why I'm like, yeah, I guess I'm kind of trying to work through. So just (laughs) disclaimer, disclaimer, this is something I don't I'm actually very unsure
0: about. And I think we can say like you're not talking about erasure as a tool for anyone. Right. For those who find it useful, it's useful. But you're talking about George's erasure.
2: Exactly. Most of the forms of erasure and birthright are erasures of self are a poem where I start off my poem and present it in a quote unquote unerased form. And then I later in the book or later in the sequence of poems, I write an erasure of that poem. And so I'm interested in the process of self erasure and how I guess language can sort of embody and disembody acts of self erasure at intersections of colonial and queer phobic violence. Um, what is the erasure that I wasn't really taught to see. Hmm. Being in America means that everything I witness about Palestine is a bit of an erasure of sorts. There, there are always these moments, I guess, of awakening that, like, I think, oh wow, over the past insert period of time, I didn't quite realize how entrenched I was in America's erasure of Palestine. Hmm. And I didn't realize that every aspect of how I view reality is tainted by that. Like a kind of example I've been going back to a lot in childhood is back when I was little, I I had a, what's it called? Family history. That's (laughs) where family history project uh, in first grade or something where we had to talk about, oh, where was our family from? And like point to it on a globe and, you know, what do we eat there? What do, you know, what, what languages do we speak, et cetera, things like that. And, and I knew the word Palestine then, Like, my parents always, you know, have said it uh, and stuff. And so I was looking on the globe Mm. in my room, and the closest word I can find to Palestine was Pakistan. (laughs) And so uh, I'm like, oh, I must have just misheard. Uh, My family is from Pakistan. Um, And so I gave a really confusing report on my Arabophone Pakistani heritage when I was in first grade. And then uh, I talked with my mom about it afterwards. And I'm like, are you sure it's Palestine? Like, because the globe, I could only see Pakistan. And she was just like, oh, well, on the globe, it's probably Israel. You know, Israel in the Bible, that word you hear in the Bible all the time. That's probably what it says. And I'm like, oh, so then where should I tell people we're from? You should say, oh, well, I'm... From the land where Jesus is from or something. is kind of what she just chalked it up to. That is so mm-hmm. heartbreaking. And There are just moments like that that I go back to and I'm like, whoa, like literally how do you as a parent to your first grade child trying to give a report on your family history, how do you tell that to them i kind of think of my life of series of kind of moments of colonial betrayal almost mm. like i lived through it i lived through the disembodiment and then there's a retrospective like whoa like a resurfacing that i go back and i'm like wow everything about how i saw insert situation was an act of like internalized implicit like colonialist gaze even parts of birthright that i the central section of the project is my return to Palestine. My one time I was able to go back, and is kind of a sequence of poems and prose fragments intertwined about about that journey and the complications therein. I was reading some of the moments in that, like just recently, that I'm like, wow, I didn't know that I was almost unintentionally time traveling with writing that section of Birthright. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a section in that sequence about Lifta, a Palestinian village outside of Jerusalem that I visited. It was an ethnically cleansed Palestinian village that is currently uninhabited, and it's just stone rubble, the remnants of, like, half-standing houses, um, And it's also positioned on a hillside so that, like, the sewage from Jerusalem, like, trickles down and, like, corrodes the land and corrodes, like, our tour guide, who is a Palestinian from Lifta, was like, yeah, my father's grave used to be on that hill, but, like, I don't know which one is his grave because the sewage erased his grave marker. And then now, like, we we ended the tour with the, okay, you see in that little distance in that hill over there, there's a new Israeli quarter that they're building at the base of the village illegally. Like it's like legally our land and also just ethically and morally because like legal is fucked in any colonialist system. Uh, But also legally, uh, including they're trying to build a new kind of resort at the base of our village. And this was what, 2017. This was January of 2017, December of 2016. That was when I went on my trip. Now, 2021, lift of resorts is a thing. You can Google it on Instagram. And I'm like, wow, I didn't know that by writing Birthright, I was in a way giving future Palestinians a way of time traveling in a really devastating way. And I think of all of my poems as kind of that, uh, and especially thinking about erasure. Erasure as like a, how do I go back to former selves and expose just how unknowable certain truths were in that mm-hmm. moment. And so to think of erasure as that, a process that can excavate that, that can embody that, or that can, or more accurately disembody.
1: I mean, I think that that's fascinating to think about erasure as this sort of like delving into yeah, the archival self.
0: erasure, you know, as yeah. a, as a, as a, and that I think is about erasure. Hmm. I don't know if the right word yet. I feel like George, you're talking about creating with erasure in mind or as a tool as opposed to, like, as opposed to received erasure, right?
1: Right, like, because I think, like, the conventional or, like, common maybe way that people might use erasure, sometimes to glorious effect, is, like, taking official documents or, like, a historical record or some sort of received text from a seat of power and then, like, clipping away in order to expose, like, the real truth that it's trying to obscure, but so like what happens when you turn that mode to the self or like to one's own sort of like indigenous histories or stories or, or memories? Like it's something necessarily different than just like, let me chip away at the power to do like this expose. And I think that like to hear you talking about that process as like an act of preservation in the face of like a present that is like erasing constantly like that's that's wild that's fast my mind is going to places right now no Uh, and I think
2: that the two are not necessarily too distinct in some ways it's mm -hmm. like exposing these systems of like oppression by a via erasure of like a document or something as a way of building towards a futurism and a future that colonialism is trying to actively deny and strip from us and Um, There is one erasure of that sort, thinking about the Balc floor declaration. Also, shout out to Kundiman, shout out to Jennifer Seng. Um, Her workshop unlocked that. She was like, I want you to bring a document of significance in some way and then I just like printed the Balfour Declaration. It was like, well, this is why I'm in America in a way. So I guess this is significant to me. Um, and literally that act of just physically, she got us all scissors and we physically cut it up. And the words that happened when I just stripped them and cut deep into them was the word understood, uh, especially the phrase being repeated, it being clearly understood. Because so much of Palestinianness is like, understanding on a mass person-to-person level, uh, colonial brainwashing is a big part of why Palestine is still occupied and is still being ethnically cleansed. But to go back to the root and say, no, early Zionists understood what they were doing. There was a quote-unquote clear understanding the actual quote is it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done to prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-jewish communities in palestine and so there's a lot to unpack with that like wow so what does that mean to yeah i'm like the poem is writing itself right like also implicit to that is it being clearly understood that there is a Palestinian people. There's a predictive, oh yeah, no. On an implicit level, when you strip that away, it's like, no. Part of the myth is that there wasn't a Palestinian people, that the land of Israel like, was created on top of empty land. And the founders of Zionism were super clear that there was a Palestinian people, actually. It's just a weird and interesting contradiction. Like all colonialist histories are riddled with.
1: Yeah. Can we return to the idea of returning? Yeah. Is that cool? Is that okay? Yes. Um, because we that's sort of where we started with um thinking about the palindrome in um your poem Heritage. But we've been talking about like the ways that form kind of speaks to the like exiling and distancing and forgetting that comes with a colonial history. And I want to ask also, like, what forms other than this palindrome have been helpful for you in the process of, like, a returning or, like, getting closer to a Palestinian poetics or people?
2: Oh, I love that question. (laughs) Um, I actually got chills from that question. Um, This might be an odd answer, but um, the after poem. Me and Franny, we talked about this at a reading we did recently. But um, I think of the after poem as... The ultimate form.
0: What's the after poem?
2: That which is called an after poem or writing a poem after another poet. um, The most fluid form. It's a form that can take a million different forms um, that I love. I think it's a form that gets to the heart of also another thing that I love about form, which is community. Forms like the golden shovel as a returning to Gwendolyn Brooks and a a way of uplifting and honoring Gwendolyn Brooks. Um, Thinking of even the possibilities of, of thank yous Uh, in poems via form I'm thinking about like what does it mean to create like another form in birthright is I created a cento composed only of lines by Palestinian poets who've made Mm -hmm. me who I am today and it's a way of saying I'm weaving a quilt and I literally it's to be read in a two dimensional array like a kufiya, an indigenous Palestinian embroidery and I'm stitching together the words from my people as a way of saying thank you to them for giving me this language. I'm really, really into the idea of forms as a vessel of lineage, too, because that is memory. That, like, if, if we were to say form is neural, then maybe form as a vessel of lineage is the kind of, like way of like neural inheritance how did i inherit structurally from my previous vessel of memory or so to speak and so yeah i'm i'm really into the idea of after poems as a way of community some of the like and this is where it gets kind of dicey. All poems are like after poems of sorts mm. of like after, like if you squint hard enough, Heritage is probably an after poem about of yours, Dinez, of that um, waiting on other people to die so I could be myself mm. poem. In, not in maybe a formal or structural sense, but in a like spiritual sense, perhaps. Yeah. And mm. I think of all poems as kind of after poems of like everything we read, everything we absorb, and everything that moves us and affects us embedded into our poetry. And so I think I would love uh, the note of like returning to Palestinians. And there's also just returning to anti-colonial legacies of poets. How can we say thank you in our poems? How can we uplift each other through our poems? How can we build the collaborative model of poetics? I think that's the kind Mm. of question I'm working towards in in my future. And I've been writing a lot with my friend, my very good friend, Fargo Tabachki, who... Check it out. Uh, this is the plug. Um, me and him are kind of writing a project. Like we both realized we're weirdly obsessed with Paradise Lost. And Daddy Milton has given us like a lot to think about. Um, even though fraught and complicated as that text kind of is. Um, there's also like a weird undercurrent of, oh yeah, Milton was like trying to like behead the, the monarchy. And that mode is like, Present in the text. And so I'm not sure we may kind of both collectively came to this realization that we, what we wanted to do was shatter Paradise Lost and from the fragments assemble a queer Palestinian futurism from that. And so we're kind of on a journey that is sort of the spirit of this project that both of us have just been kind of writing poems to each other and doing this weird thing that we're trying to. You know, maybe one day it'll be a book. Maybe one day it'll be a performance. We'd love to stage it because Fargo's a theatrical person and I have a lot of roots in slam and spoken word. So yeah, I would love to think about like how performance can also unlock uh, and be a vehicle of both formal inspiration, but also just returning. Like what if this poem was to be sung by a choir, an infernal choir of Palestinians in some inaccessible Space of historical memory, writing with people is is form in a way or form is a way of you know expressing love for people, solidifying those bonds. And so, yeah, the easiest way to return to Palestinians is to return to to return to Palestinians, write together, mm-hmm. be together. I kind of think about June Jordan. I don't think there's a single poet I felt more loved by as a Palestinian uh, who's who's not Palestinian than June Jordan. And thinking about how a lot of her poems are vehicles towards uh, building a better future with and among and speaking with and speaking among, not speaking for like the colonial project wants us to do.
0: That's beautiful.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Also, I just want to say I love hearing you talk about poems. It's such That's a cool. active like language of vocab- yeah. like you know talking about shattering Paradise Lost. Like just such like like you talk about form in such a muscled way. It's just like so it's invigorating yeah. as a poet to hear
1: it's um, muscled and yes. super nerdy super nerdy <laughs> and we love both we love but it
0: isn't it, isn't it language how how nerds get muscles you know don't we have the muscular- <laughs> we have muscular language
2: you know i i'm not a, i'm not a sports i'm not a sports gay this is the only muscles i'll have <laughs> yes.
0: i got a muscular sentence motherfucker um But I wanted to think about performing because I thought it was so powerful in your work that so many of your poems require us as readers to perform or to imagine, um, right, this work in the world, right? This poem is to be written on the side of my childhood home in blood. Or this poem is to be written two-dimensional as, like, you know, traditional tapestry. Or this poem is to be read in the mirror, right? I thought it was beautiful because I was like, wow, George is literally making us perform and imagine and make Palestinian poetry happen in the world. What does that mean for like an English speaking, like probably American on this like you know, on Button Poetry Press, like what does it mean for that? And I <laughs> I mean right, like you know, shit, let's be honest, yeah, right? Like yeah. we know the presses we're on, right? Yeah. <laughs> All of us. Shit. Um, we,
2: we we read the good read reviews like, oh yeah. Was a difficult read, TR. Oh Lord like, <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. You're already starting to answer it, but like, how are you thinking about your workers' performance, and what does it mean for you to make us perform as an audience member? What does it mean for you to reach to us and make us do some of the work?
2: Y'all's questions are giving me goosebumps. Like, oh my god! <laughs> um, I think there are complications with the framework, of course. That oh, once the poem is out in the world, it's not my own because, like, it is my own, but it's it. But also, it is and is not my own. Maybe is what I'm trying to say. And I like the idea of saying, okay, you can lowercase R read a poem, but you can also capital R read a poem. I don't think every poem is to be capital R read by every reader, and that's okay. I don't think it's a realistic expectation, but if there is something that is unlocking with a poem to push one, to capital R read it, to take it to the mirror, to, uh, you know, I would really hope that someone doesn't write that poem on a wall in blood from Birthright on someone's house. Like, that is not what I'm trying to ask you to do. Um, You asked for it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But, like, the idea that there are readers out there that I know, just as when I had that magical unlocking moment with Solmaz and Phil and, 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 uh, there's going to be someone for whom this poetry will either be that or will lead them to the poets that might want them to be that. Like what? Like if you read my book and you say, oh, who had that line in that cento? Oh, that was Lina Khalif Tafaha." Now I want to read her work. Great, Birthright accomplished its job. Um, I think of like my poems as like, hi FBI agent listening to this call. <laughs> I think of my poems as little terrorists almost, uh, ways of saying, if you are capital R reading my poem, If you want to go to a protest, you're a capital R reading my poem if you want to go and support BDS. You're a capital R reading my poem if you are like putting my book down and getting involved in doing shit against empire, against American colonialism and against Israeli, except just against, you know, any forms of colonialism we're entrenched in. So I think that, for me, it's not even a performance at that point. It's like the, I think performance can be a link between poetry and action and a, and a call to say, no, I'm not really interested in my poetry existing as just poetry I don't want you to sit and read this book to empathize with me as a Palestinian. I want you Hmm. to read this book and get angry. I want you to read this book and like do something for Palestine. (laughs) Um, And and that's not every reader, but like it's it's my hope at least. And I don't know, maybe performance can be one way of thinking about how we can get there, thinking about how we can push people to say, no, you have a role in it. Birthright ends in a two-dimensional map. The table of contents is not actually the table of contents. It's at the very end of the book. Uh, the book isn't to be read in a linear order. The book is actually a two-dimensional map where you can drop yourself in at any point and read the poems in kind of fixed lineages. And you can either stay within a lineage of poems. There are two kind of solutions of how to read Birthright. You can either remain cyclic, like in an infinitely cyclic loop of trauma, Or you can break your lineage and converge into an alternate mythology. And that's kind of the meta, like, capital R reading of the book. And and I'm like, no, but that is kind of colonialism. You're placed on a point in the map, and you're saying, okay, what are my bearings? Do I want to cycle infinitely in a traumatic loop? Or do I want to break and converge towards an alternate myth, a better elsewhere? I wanted, at least, Birthright to get closer to embodying that decision process uh and the book as a performance object in that in that sense
1: it seems like another example though of like how what you envision happening at the end of somebody reading your works is that they like take an action whether it's like going back and reading it differently or like leaving the book and going into the world and you know doing some of the things that you said supporting bds going to a protest etc um this link between poetry and not just performance, but, like, maybe performance as part of a larger practice or, like, praxis. You know, poetry as, like, the the spur to to actions of various kinds is, like,
0: just really moving to me. Poetry as a praxis of action, whether yeah. in the reading or what that poem leads you to in the world.
1: Right. Well, I wonder, before we go into games, if there are, like, speaking of spurring our listeners to action, like, I know that, like, kind of, like, the asking of... A- you know of um for like a list of action steps can be kind of dicey but if it's something that you would be willing to engage in or throw to our readers i think that that would be cool
2: yeah no thank you for that space um i think that it all boils down to listening to palestinians on the ground right now um i am not a palestinian on the ground my ground is stolen indigenous american land um and Yeah, speak up, have conversations with your workplace that are uncomfortable and that are like asking your workplace, be it academic or whatever, um, to take a firm stand in solidarity with Palestinians, uh, boycott Israeli products. Uh, The BDS movement is a concrete call to strategic, intentional, targeted boycotting of key companies that have a specific harmful role in the colonial apparatus. Um, BDSmovement.net, that is the correct website for it. Um, as a strategic targeting, it's kind of working. So supporting BDS is a concrete, tangible way of like getting involved, um, listening to and boosting news sources on the ground. Um, you know, I would love to have more conversations with poetry institutions about how can we support Palestinians in Palestine who are poets too. Great. You retweet like my poem and Noor Hindi's fuck your lecture on craft and insert lists of like a few Mahmoud Darwish poems. Great. That's not activism. What I envision of like a supporting Palestinian artists like if if it's if it's not including Artists in Palestine—that's like kind of weak in my opinion. And um, Fadi Judah actually has a really great translation series right now out with the Baffler that is translating again predominantly younger and newer Palestinian voices into English. And it's an ongoing, like uh, at least once a week type a poem releases, at least once a week type series. The call to translation is an anti neo colonial mode. Um, that's something I've been thinking about a lot, and I think there's a lot of great radical potential for that within Palestine. It's an imperfect answer, but like, I, it's, it's something that I think that 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 might be more for like Palestinian and Arab and Arabophone listeners out there for like thinking about how can we as a collective take a anti-colonial practice with our translation skills, if we have them and center Palestinians in Palestine. That's like also a challenge to me that I'm trying to vocalize as well. And, uh, it's something that I want to think through more with other Palestinians. Um, thank
1: thank you, you. Thanks George. Yeah. And may this starting list of actions lead to other actions, you know,
0: until Palestine is free.
1: Yeah. Yeah. so we're going to subject george abraham the brilliant george abraham neuroscientist uh to some of the dumbest games that we could come up with um the first of which is called fast punch for better or for worse um and it is where we will throw a list of 10 categories At you, George. And depending on whether you want to be a lover or hater today, uh, you'll tell us either the best of all of those categories or the worst of those categories. So, George, do you want to say the best of stuff or the worst of stuff?
2: Can I switch between? (laughs) Like, Mm. I'll do the best of this thing and the worst of this thing? Sure.
1: Yeah, maybe Dinesh can be the worst. And then I can be the (laughs) best. or Denise can say the worst stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah, so you'll say. Yeah, okay,
0: mine can be worse. Okay, cool, cool, cool. because I
1: think that mine are a little, (laughs) yeah.
0: I'll go first? Yes. All right, George, worst month?
2: Not to be that person, but it has to be springtime. It has to, I hate, I hate spring. So like an April? March. March.
1: Wow. Yeah. Best... Sonnet that you've ever read.
2: It'll have to be "Lovely Love" by Gwendolyn Brooks. Wow.
0: <laughs> All right. Worst shape.
2: Oh, square. Yeah.
1: <laughs> okay. Best tree.
2: Olive tree. Sorry, not to be that person.
1: One hundred percent. On brand. You can.
2: You can, you can be that. You can be that Palestinian. <laughs> yeah, I <know>. like, <laughs> uh, apologies <laughs> to the Palestinian listeners. Cringing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Somebody's like, diaspora fucking poets. Yeah, like, I
2: know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Worst science class?
2: Oh, chemistry. Easily. Mm-hmm. Ugh, fuck chemistry. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Best form of potato.
2: I like my red potatoes.
1: I like Ooh. them.
2: I like mashed potatoes with red potatoes. It's very... But mashed.
1: You want yeah, mashed red yeah. potatoes.
2: Interesting. Because I like leaving the skins a bit on and it's very like, I don't know, uh, thick mashed potatoes with... Yeah, anyways. Yeah. <laughs> hmm.
0: Worse, and I'm not sure how to define this, but worse poetic form. So I don't know if that means like you hate them or like you hate writing them.
2: Oh, God. ah. Uh. Fuck the French, the villain <laughs> <laughs> L.
1: Um, uh, best Arabic word. We I mean, you know that you've been taking an Arabic class.
2: I like the word muzdahima because there's a big like muzdahima. Like there's like the, the <laughs> D is like a punch to the gut because of the little vocalizations in the word. Uh, and it means crowded. And I'm like, that word feels crowded to me. Yeah. So, yeah. Like.
0: <laughs> All right. Last one for me. Worst poem at the poetry slam.
2: <laughs> <laughs> one time a white girl went up in an IDF, uh, for those who don't know, the Israeli Defense Forces shirt and opened a poem by starting to twerk. And then was like, eek! It just stayed there uncomfortably, like, as if we thought, oh no, did she actually throw her back out twerking on stage? But it was part of the performance. What was
0: her poem about? What?
2: I honestly, I think I repressed it from my memory. The runner-up was, I was at a slam once, a slam that shall not be named from a Jersey team that shall not be named, where they did an entire group piece hating on Scorpios. I'm a Scorpio. And... I was just sitting in the back with insert y'all's favorite slam poets, TM, and we were all rolling our eyes so hard. The final poem I'm reading on this podcast, I had to do right after a Scorpio hate piece.
1: Ooh, final one. um, Best home-cooked dish. Oh.
2: There's a dish called makloube. It means upside down in Arabic. And you layer it, uh, chicken on the bottom, and then a layer of, like, veggies, like eggplant, and uh, cauliflower, et cetera. Then rice. And then you cover it the- with broth and just Ooh. let it stew mm. together. And then at the end, you flip it upside down so the chicken's mm. on the top. And, yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, I want that. that-
2: immediately yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'll make it i'll make y'all come to boston i'll make it for y'all <laughs> oh
0: my yeah. god wow
1: someday I'm about to
0: text my grandma like half a why aren't you palestinian <laughs> <laughs> go be from palestine grandma that sounds that sounds delicious
1: <laughs> um george a. ram you won the game yay yay good job <laughs> Okay, next, round two of our game night uh, Mm -hmm. is, well, I guess I explained the last one. Do you want to explain this one?
0: Well, well, here we have a special round of this versus that because we are going to play a final four, um, this versus that. Well, we are going to play a little bracket with four different poetic forms to decide once and for all which one will win in a fight. Who is the strongest?
1: Round one is?
0: The sonnet versus the sestina.
2: I am in the audience, rooting for Team Sonnet. I think probably ninety nine percent of the literary world <laughs> would likely be rooting mm. for Team Sonnet, but sistinas are just so fucking annoying that the Sistina wins. <laughs> I think that's how it has to go down. Just like I've I've just seen sonnets can be really inconsistent, and sonnet has a higher standard deviation, mm. but uh, sistina has a sharper, less standard deviation. And maybe the mean is like lower, but like the the the, the better things are. Yeah. yeah, a lot
0: more bad sonnets in the world than bad cestinas. Because when you write a bad cestina, you don't publish it. A bad sonnet could convince you it's a good poem. You know, like only the good mm. is really make it right. right. And yeah. also, like lots years, of yeah. us
1: poets have been beaten by sestina's literally
0: to the point where like niggas have to start making like shit like failed sestina or sestina right, right, right. Or blah 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 yeah. cuz it's like I tried to write a sestina and I couldn't and win I couldn't do so, it so, <laughs> so so here's the remnant <laughs>
1: invented for me exactly yeah. exactly yeah. okay round 2 of this fight okay so sestina advances sestina right. advances to the final round Huzzle versus pantoum Oh no!
2: <laughs> You're gonna do it to me. Ugh. Oh, fuck. I, you know, I will say that Guzzle, because Pantombs, I I love what Kay Ulandi Barrett said about Pantombs being the buy one, get one free of the poetry worlds. Like, <laughs> 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 shit. <Shucks. laughs> <laughs> That's it's really so funny. Funny. Yeah. So funny. Shout out to Kay forever. Um, <laughs> I'll never forget that. Um, but I mean guzzles are like not a form to me. They're a world, they're mm. a universe. It would be a respectful fight. It would be a very close fight. And I think at the end, the pantoum and the guzzles would hug it out and write a very dramatic poem about it. <laughs>
1: wow. <laughs> wow! So Guzzle advances to the finals.
2: Amen.
0: Amen. Which
1: means that the final round is Sestina versus Guzzle.
2: I think I already told myself it's going to be the Guzzle <laughs> um, because the, 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 mm. I think because at this point everyone is just like fuck Sestina for winning round one. And then the the Guzzle's <laughs> rounds like put a like you know wrench in everyone's hearts, and then it'll be a very hard earned fight. The Sestina at several points will look like it has won, but the Guzzle will just mm. take it. It keeps coming back.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah keeps coming the back. Persistence. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. yeah, and also because like a Sestina has an end point, but a Guzzle Huzzle could go on forever. It could it yeah. just keep going. Right. Yeah.
0: And then just like a fighter that just knocked you out says its name at the end, right? Nah.
1: <laughs> Stands
0: over your body and is like,
1: and bitch out me. In the last line the last couple. Of, oh man. That's really, really good. Yeah. I'm
2: dead. Wow. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. Wow. Oh my god. Um, to be clear to all the viewers out there, this is not me saying Guzzle is the best for form, um, but like this is just me saying that in a fight, I think it's 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 the obvious winner in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: it's got yeah. them hands, yeah, them non-linear hands. You
2: don't know where they are coming from? Just like, What's up? like <laughs> <laughs> this nigga hitting me with everything. Like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. If um, hey, folks want to listen or read. Uh, really awesome guzzles. Zeina Heshembeck has some amazing guzzles. Dilruba Ahmed has a, a bunch of amazing guzzles. Shout out Ruba was my mentor in undergrad. Love her. Yeah. And of course, Tarfia Faizula's Infinity guzzle.
0: Tarfia's been on this podcast, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, She's that's been, the been one on we had it twice, re- We had to record it twice. I was like, yeah, that's right. I was like-
1: <laughs> the first time the audio got messed up. Yeah. And also, Denez was having a full-body allergic attack.
0: I was having a full-body allergic reaction to to, to, to to some confusing milk sign at a coffee shop.
1: Yeah. Turns out almond cashew milk doesn't mean, does not mean either or, or. <laughs> cashew milk. It means almond cashew. Yeah. What? Who does that? That's, oh, okay. That's bullshit. I'm yeah. sorry. I'm Who so does that?
0: Some yeah. of us can only have yeah. one nut, not two. <laughs> not, not a I'm not a greedy bottom.
1: She's a one nut girl. Yeah.
0: I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, misogy- I'm a misogynist. <laughs> my, 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 what's the word for when you only fuck one person? Um,
1: monogamist.
0: I'm a monogamist girl. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you ending this podcast by saying, yeah, I'm a misogynist. <laughs> <laughs> Which is true. <laughs> oh, my we I mean,
0: you're a misogynist until you're not. and So I'm probably a misogynist, you know. Um, I mean, we all participate. We are. Um, Yeah, I participate. I I go to the misogynist county fair. You know, I'm not proud to be there, but,
1: you know.
0: All right, let's play our last game. What the fuck? Daniel, cut all this. Okay, last game is um, a game of Franny's invention called This Versus Something Else, where we're going to ask you if you would like to stay in this reality or live in this surrealist space that we just had for you. So, George... Thinking about the fragmentation of memory inside a form and who memory belongs to and all those other kind of things, I want to ask, would you live in this world or would you rather live in a world where you can have any memory you want, but it comes as a 1,000 piece puzzle that you have to figure out?
2: well this world cuz i think invasion of privacy <laughs> um, and not to be a poet but i think there's a price to memory and there's a burden to memory too i don't know i feel like everyone would distrust everyone in a world like where you could just access everyone's memories and like the puzzles would have to be that like some puzzles are impossible to solve to protect people's privacy that's that would be the redeeming thing of that world but i think for the time being i think it would be this world.
1: Mm-hmm. What if what if it were only your own? Mm-hmm. If you couldn't access if it, it was just like any memory that you have from wow. your life but you could access it as a 100 1000 piece puzzle.
2: That would be a yes and i would even add to like mm. i don't know past lives and ancestral lives like i'm like what if the ancestors themselves made the puzzle? I want Whoa. to access this part of the memory and then an ancestor will be like, "Okay, here's a two piece puzzle because I want you to know that." But then I want to access this, and then they're like, "Here's a fractal that is an infinite puzzle you'll never finish solving." <laughs>
0: right?
1: Whoa. Damn, I love that.
0: So the That's ancestor insane. gets to decide like the weight of the memory is like, "Oh, you want this one? You literally yeah. got to work for it, or I'm literally not going to give it to you. Here's an yeah. impossible thing,
1: or..."
2: Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. So I feel like this could be like a really spicy, like, YA series or something. And like, yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I love it as a YA series. Yeah.
0: If I see any of you hoes out here selling (laughs) TV shows with memory puzzles, (laughs) no ass. (laughs) Have you thought about it?
1: (laughs) The Ancestor Chronicles.
0: No, it'd be called Peace of Me. (laughs)
1: Oh. Wow. Piece of me.
0: We are dangerously far from where we started and 2 <laughs> yeah, hours into this insane
1: Um George, it has been such a blast and such a boon um to to get to spend this time with you. Um thank you for everything that you've shared with us and for and with our listeners. Um where can people find you um yeah where should people look to get more george abraham poetry in their lives
2: oh thank y'all this has been honestly really fun it's been such great (laughs) um so my twitter and instagram handles are at Intifada batata, which means like revolutionary potato. <laughs> 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 and yeah, um, I would also love to shout out my friend Fargo Tabakki. You can find him at you know Fargo. Zayna El Sous is another amazing poet. I think she's a little bit uh under the radar on like social media, but just look out for her poetry, Zena El Sous. Um, If you want to follow folks on the ground uh, and other Palestinians, um, Nadira Mansour has an amazing list of Palestinian sources. Also, Mohammed al-Kurd should be like the poet laureate of all of our hearts. Like he's literally fighting a battle against his ethnic cleansing of his own house. Uh, live streaming it pretty much, and like every single day, the Israeli military is just like making him and his family's lives hell. And he's also an amazing poet, so like check his work out. His book is coming out with Haymarket this fall, Rifka. Um, by yeah, Mohammed El Kurd. So yeah,
1: thank you so much, George. Will you do us the honor of closing us out with one last poem? Thank
2: you. Yeah, there is no loneliness when you have the whole world inside of you, Vanessa Meng. Against Consolidation. I want to write about the blueberries I picked from the throat of a New England fall afternoon, how my hands plucked each branch like a familiar melody, and suddenly, this 2008, I am small and unremarkable, standing in a blueberry orchard in Northern California with my cousins. Maybe summer is a form of muscle memory. I want to write, a poem about muscle memory, a phenomenon which after decades of studies still has no complete explanation. One theory suggests these memories undergo consolidation, the process of stabilization from short to long-term memory. Perhaps we can infer the existence of a thing without knowing its internal structure. Perhaps our bodies remember a music by the hollow dancing it leaves behind. Many mathematical proofs of existence cannot explicitly construct their objects of interest. One tool for such proofs is the axiom of choice. Metaphorically speaking, it too is a form of unconscious memory. It states, given a tree with an unimaginable number of branches, it is still possible to pluck one blueberry from each branch. That's not the point. I'm saying choice, not inherent to every system of logic. The first time I learned this was not in the context of mathematics or countries or bodies. I want to write about my country and mean country, such a silly tithe, forgiving sacrifice. I want to write about home and not have to mean country or death or how easily the two can be mistaken for one another. One could say this is a consequence of neither concept being well-defined. Logical assumptions like the axiom of choice can lead to, quote, pathological behaviors that violate our conceptions of mass, space, and time. For instance, it is possible to decompose one sphere into two identical spheres, hence four, hence infinitely many. From one life springs two, hence four, hence infinitely many. One could say death is poorly defined in such a logical framework. Or perhaps every death is an unobservable construction. Consider, for instance, the ancestors resurrected in every poem. How is fluent in their death the language of their death before ever being fluent in the Arabic they spoke before me, Allah yurhamma and this is not the job of the poet much like the mathematician to give language to that which cannot be constructed, to uneviscerate flesh, give muscle memory to every chaos of limbs 1998 my earliest memory is being lost in a sea of cousins at a Christmas party I do not stand out from the crowd until the Debkiss starts the music shaking the floor beneath my feet and I dance like there is no earthquake beneath me I dance and part My cousins like every ocean split before me. Like my body knew I was Palestinian before I did, or maybe it was the lurch of my gut the last time I visited my queer aunt's unmarked grave. How even in remembrance, her ghost was but an erasure of her former self. It is important to mention the last person I loved was buried in the same cemetery just yards away. And yet I have spanned entire galaxies, entire failed poems trying to reconstruct her laughter. How we remember not the beloved, but the music they leave behind. How the last time I visited her grave, the gray skies parted. No metaphor. Leaky light onto blank stone for the first time all week. And in coincidence or faith, I am inclined to call that grace. I want to write about tiny miracles. I woke up this morning. I woke up this morning. One could call this an instance of pathological behavior, or maybe the first pathological behavior was when I mentioned the word country, or the space between countries and bodies in line six. Perhaps, since this is a poem about memory, it is discontinuous by necessity. There are hands, hence... There will always be breakage. Neurological theory argues against some forms of consolidation, says some memories never stabilize, but are encoded in parallel architectures. This suggests we encode reality in multiplicities. Hence, every perception of reality is, by construction, a multiverse of complexity. I want to write about the first Palestinian I met in grad school like she wasn't a miracle or... Maybe every Palestinian is a parallel universe. I want to write about New Year's Eve in Bethlehem, the house swelling with cousins and their pillow fight laughter. I want to talk about George, who was always the first to throw the pillow but had the sweetest face when his mother came around, his father outside roasting kebab, talking about those fuckers and their checkpoints ruining his morning commute, and Natalie, who paraded her hand-stitched thobes throughout the house like she owned the place and in the same breath told us how Jesus cured her cancer before the chemo could. I want to write about Nadia, who knew more English than her mother, but counted down to midnight in Arabic. The whole house dancing to a music they didn't know, but understood. I want to remember my homeland this way. The city alight, but not ablaze. I want to write about nights in Philistine where the last thing we thought about was death about being smoked out in Ramallah like she knows she'll rise with a barbed wire teeth and a steel-tipped boot to the face. That reality exists without saying, so give us tonight to dance without words. Let me remember first the dance and not the ensuing exile. Let me write about home. Without writing its unbecoming, I confess I've spent too much time revolving around my own becoming. The way time dilates around a black hole, realities diverging at the point where not even light escapes, I confess. Dear reader, dear listener, that by hearing this, you've become my latest test subject. Yes, I speak not of this poem, but the memory of it. The parallel world's Your minds will inhabit, patching together my every image in your universe and perception. I mean, there will always be a universe in your mind. And in that universe, there will always be a Palestine with children laughing. Men have turned entire countries into test subjects without their consent neither the men nor the countries are named so as to restrict them from the universe of this poem, and it follows that every poem is a false god of sorts, maybe not in sin, but in the confession of it, and the unraveling between poem and reality and perception of poem. I began this poem with blueberries, with muscle memory, the system does not converge, and hands, or maybe I never had control over the narrative. Being ill defined, the system does not converge when I say the system does not converge his hands smelled like the system does not converge like blueberries California 2008 the system does not converge I am small the system Philadelphia 2015 yes he made a massacre of me yes I was his for the taking I am small converge I am insignificant the poem is circling back the system does not and diverging the poem is assuming converge realities meanings the poem does not converge the hands this way the system fails the poem intersects with to converge the reality of the reader the poem remembers the systems not with the reader, the hands that converge. the systems does not converge. The poem remembers always the hands, the hands, the poem remembers always the hands, the system does not converge. the system does not converge. The poem does not converge. the poem fails to 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 converge.
0: was george abraham with a nine-minute poem thank you for taking up that space george and um offering us this new work that is just um so incredibly forceful
1: yeah i wonder we actually don't usually um spend a lot of time in this like little bit at the end here dinez um talking about the poem but i know that you had some thoughts about it that you wanted to say yeah I mean, well, one, I
0: think I just love the, from the lead up, um, the idea of George doing this poem in a slam, which I think, you know, to do a nine minute poem is truly, you know, a fuck you um, to the form of slam, right? Really breaking form in a physical way, right? And saying that I am going to break the rules of this game because there is like something that I personally must say, you know, we all talk about like making the personal political, but I think anywhere you look in one of George's poems, you sort of can cite both the, emotional location and the political awareness and implications of the body at any point. And they're not sacrificed for one another, right? The body is as whole in theory as it is in flesh. You come out of any work, right, with knowing that this is a writer who Loves and dreams and fights for Palestine with his real heart and real hands, you know, and I just think they just do such a wonderful job I don't know. I was floored by it, right? That's how you should be floored after not 9 the (laughs) bone.
1: I mean, I wrote down this this line that they said in the interview to be devoted to form is to be devoted to form's breakage and on the one hand we all know that like you know, you break the rules of the form, you break the rules of, like, the convention of, like, when you're making art, Like This is sort of, like, a, a common thing. But also, the idea of performing this poem in a slam makes me also think about the ways that breaking the rules has consequences sometimes, you know? Like, you can, like, not rhyme the sonnet or like put a 15th line on it and then like the consequences that you've like written like a cool version of a sonnet whereas like to break the rules in that competition means that like you lose the competition and maybe you lose like money like maybe you, you lose something material and like I don't know. This makes me think that maybe like this is a thing for us as writers to also keep exploring, us as like minoritarian writers. Like, what are the consequences? What are the actual consequences that like some of us are subject to when we break the rules? And some of us are just, you know, maybe like praised for. Hmm. But um, maybe in the spirit of not coming to uh, really neat conclusions, like maybe we should just leave it there and. Invite you all to sit with the questions that have come up in this interview and come up for you while listening to the poem. Um, and, like, if you don't come to any easy, cohesive answers, then, like, that's okay, you know? Mm-hmm. So, should we thank some people?
0: Yeah, I'm gonna thank Suhir Ahmad, um, who was the first Palestinian poet, I think, to really awaken me um, to what was going on in Palestine to complicating like the narratives that I was hearing as a citizen in America about Israel um, and to so what the experience on that land is and what the history of what that has been. I still teach her poems um, from the Gaza Suite all the time. I highly recommend it um, if you are somebody who Um, who art is a way that you access um, the truths and like, you know, the actions and the energies that we need to change the world, then definitely check that out. Um, So thank you, Sahara Ma, just a beautiful poet um, in general. Um, But thank you for always showing us that our people's heart is always at the heart of our work.
1: Yeah, for sure. I want to thank poetry translators everywhere and people who edit anthologies of translated poetry too, um, for helping kind of, Bridge those, you know, that what Pungjinno called the one inch fence of subtitles, right? Like, there's a lot that goes into um, scaling the fences of, of language barriers. And um, so, to everybody that helps us scale those fences, um, thank you. We also want to thank our producer, Daniel Kisslinger. Thank you to Idalmi Noriega and Itzel Blancas at the Poetry Foundation. Thank you to Post Labness. Um, and thank you to all of you for continuing to listen to us here at Verses
0: make sure you like rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts follow us on Twitter at VS the podcast and that's it turn this off you know um, go listen to the next thing Um, okay bye bye (laughs)
1: perfect